Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, you shall not, they shall not reach you. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 3. So we continue in our series from the prayers of the Apostle Paul as to what Christian maturity looks like. We're in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. That's a little bit of a drag on that. Um, so we're going to try that again. Do we want to reread it to get it? Or we'll just say it. How about this? This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word, all that you have revealed and spoken to us by your spirit. And we give thanks that you grant us your spirit to illumine our hearts and lead us into all understanding of the truth you have given. Take us into the incomprehensible nature of your love this morning, that we know of your great affirmation of us in Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose and has done everything to make us your own. We pray in his name. Amen. Hadija lives in Dabab. It's one of the world's largest refugee camps. It's on the hot plains of Kenya, just outside of the Somali border. 
She settled there in 1998 after everything in Somalia began to fall apart. She was one of the fortunate ones because she gained refugee status and she could move from Somalia into Kenya. But then an even greater fortune fell upon her because there is a small, very tiny minority of people inside the refugee camp who are then chosen and singled out to receive the privilege of being resettled in the United States. And so Hadija was one of the few. She felt blessed. But if you're familiar with the refugee process, it's often long and arduous. And Hadija was there for year after year after year. Resettlement is extremely slow. In the camp, rations grew shorter and shorter. There are few ways to make money. The Kenyan government doesn't allow the refugees to work outside the camp. And Hadija fell into debt, severe debt, uh, to people inside the camp. She's discouraged, frustrated. She's disheartened. And two options were there before her because life in the camp was no longer tenable. She could continue to wait for resettlement, hope against hope that it was going to happen, or she could return home to Somalia. There was even some financial inducement to return home. In her despair, she lost hope, and she decided to go back to the failed state where there was chaos and scarcity still, scarcity still reigning. A difficult, hard decision, but one that she felt like she had to make. And when we look at the Christian life, it's important for us to recognize that there are similar dynamics at play. When we first encounter the grace of God, we are frequently filled with great hope, a sense of privilege that we have been possessed by God and set apart for him, that the grace of God has flooded our lives and healed our broken past and forgiven our sins. But then we enter into the long and the hard part of the journey. We face trials and difficulties. We have discouragements and failures, setbacks and frustrations. All these things are part of the Christian life. We're awaiting resettlement. We're awaiting some kind of change, and we just don't feel like it comes. We, too, can grow disillusioned and weary, and we begin to ask the question, is it all worth it? Is it all worth it? And that question is asked by every sincere Christian who's ever encountered the grace of God. And that question raises another question, though. As we ask, is it all worth it, we also are asking, what do we need in order to sustain ourselves through the Christian life? What do we need? And in Ephesians 3... Paul explains what we need inside the context of his prayer for the Ephesian church. We're particularly focused on verses 14 through 19 this morning because Paul explains that what we need in order to sustain the Christian life is we need to be strengthened by God. He'll then go on to explain that strengthening that needs to happen, that it needs to happen in two ways that we need to be strengthened by God, that is, empowered by the Spirit, and then also we need to be strengthened by the Spirit in order to comprehend the love of God. That for all of us who've been 
taken into the refugee camp, who find refuge in Jesus Christ, who find him to be a shelter from our sins, are now on the long journey, who are living in hope, and yet who can become discouraged. This is what we most desperately need, to be strengthened by God. And so let's look at both parts of that strengthening this morning. First, we need to be strengthened with power. This is what Paul explains in verse 16. He prays this, that according to the riches of God's glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He goes on, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's important to recognize that when Paul prays that they be strengthened by the spirit in the inner being and that Christ would dwell in your hearts, he's speaking of the same realities. It's just parallel phrases. But it's here inside of this prayer that we encounter the fundamental insult of the Christian gospel. Because as he prays for us to be strengthened, he uses the passive voice, which means something has to happen to us. And friends, inside of that passive voice, there is an insult being declared about all of us. That we're not sufficient for the job. That we don't have it in hand. That we can't accomplish it. That we're insufficient for the task, that if we're going to make the long, arduous Christian journey, God must come to us and strengthen us, empower us by the Spirit. And this is what many people cannot sustain about the Christian faith. This strike against our pride, this strike against our self-sufficiency. They simply can't take it. They can't manage it. It just seems too devastating. But what Paul is explaining here is that if we desire Christian maturity, then we must be strengthened by God. That to be strengthened by God means that we own our weakness, that we recognize our incapacity, and that we look and depend upon him to give us the strength we could never have. Now, in the early days of pastoring, when I was serving at Second Presbyterian, I felt strong and confident as a person. Oftentimes it felt like I just went from strength, to th from strength to strength. And it would have been easy to confuse my self-confidence with faith. I certainly did. God loved me enough not to leave me there. But the process of turning from a personal strength and self-confidence to asking God to empower me and work inside of me for his grace to be my confidence and my strength was not an easy one. It wasn't particularly pleasant for me or for those around me. It was through a series of circumstances that I encountered frustration, personal weakness. I encountered my lack of control of what went on in the world. I encountered failure, and I found that my confidence eroded, and it was stripped away. And so someone asked me, they said, well, Chuck, are you going to get your confidence back? I proudly would have said yes, but the thing that I didn't realize, and it took several years to come to terms with, is that God didn't want me to get my confidence back. In fact, he was taking me through those frustrations and trials, those troubles and those failures, just so that he could strip it away so that I would learn a new form of confidence. And friends, that's what the apostle is teaching us to pray, 
to ask for, that God would empower us, that we be strong in the spirit, that we not find confidence in our native abilities or in our gifts or in whatever it may be that gives us sources of security, but rather that we look to him for strength, that this is what we vitally need, is an empowerment by the spirit, Christ dwelling in the heart through faith. This is what sustains the Christian life. And in that long, arduous journey where we can lose hope, this is what is most needed, being empowered by the Spirit. But the second thing that the apostle turns to pray, pointing out what we need for this Christian life, is we need strength from God to comprehend the love of God in Christ. He spells this out in verse 18 that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, one of the things that's common inside of the Christian church is we explain that the gospel is very simple. The great love of God revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus by which he canceled out our sins and we are given a verdict of not guilty in front of God because of what Christ has done on our behalf for us. And it is a simple message. And yet Paul says here that it also surpasses knowledge. And there are many times in the Christian life where we can come bored with the Christian message, with the Christian gospel, and we can think that we need something else. But this is not the fault of the gospel. Because while it's a simple message, it's also an incomprehensible one. It's one that we never fully get our hands around. It's one that we never fully understand. Because while we noted the insult of the gospel that tells us that we're insufficient, that we're not strong enough, that we must find resources from God to endure and persevere, we also find here the deepest affirmation that's possible for a human being to experience. We hear that nothing is greater than the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, that we can never fully understand it, we can never grasp it completely, that it will always elude us because it's greater and stronger than our mind's capacity, it's greater and stronger than the power of our sins. This is what Paul contends for us. And that we must be strengthened by God to apprehend just more and more as we advance in the Christian life. And this is the key dynamic of a vitalized and alive Christian life. It's a fascination and an ever-growing apprehension and appreciation of God's grace in Jesus. You see, we can't master this knowledge. It's not just simply a fact to be studied. It's not something but by owning theology books that you then own. No, see, rather, it's an experience it certainly requires theological knowledge and understanding, but it goes beyond that. It's an experience that we're drawn into to know what it means to be embraced by God and Jesus and all that he's done for us. An experience that we can never exhaust. And it takes us in many different directions. And the Apostle Paul, in the letter of Ephesians, shows us the many directions that it will take us. 
You see, the love of God first, it takes us into eternity past. And here we learn of the eternal counsels of God, where he singles us out in Jesus Christ. If you looked in chapter 1 and verses 3 through 6, you would see that God was planning and determining salvation. Before the foundations of the world, in a great mystery, he was placing his love upon us. And friends, people ask me from time to time, are you a Calvinist? And I will typically will answer, yes, I'm a Calvinist. I'm proudly a Calvinist. And they say, well, why? Isn't that arbitrary and unfair? There are so many things about your theological position that I can't understand. And they then expect me to be the typical Calvinist and come back with them with fury and all the answers, giving answer to all of their objections. And rather the thing to say is, I get it. I understand. But the reason that I'm a Calvinist is because it affirms what Scripture affirms. And no, I don't understand all the nooks and the crannies of God's eternal counsel. But you know what God also says is that I will never understand, never be able to exhaust his love. That I will not get my mind around his mind. That I will not get my mind around his love. And so rather than try to understand it and to get my reason around it, I simply want to receive it. And friends, when we see that the love of God reaches into eternity past, look what Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 1. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. That this is what is to shape me in my understanding of the love of God, that I am caught up. My life is defined by this great mystery in which my life has been captured. That God was doing something before the foundations of the world on my behalf, humbling, denying my self-sufficiency, calling me away from myself, and calling me to praise the glorious grace of God. This is the first direction it takes us. The other direction that the love of God takes us is into the depth of our sin and failure. In chapter 2, Paul contends that we were dead in our trespasses. That our sins, past, present, and future, that they mount up against us. That our sin, just like the love of God, is incomprehensible. Just when we think we know it and understand it, we learn that there's more. And one of our great fears, though, is that we can indeed measure the grace of God. That we all live with the sneaking suspicion that somehow the grace of God is going to run out for us. That we're going to come to the end of that because our sins are so many. And that we're going to come up short. And friends, this just reveals our impoverished gospel. Because as the love of God takes us into the depth of our sinful failures, as we meet our personal weaknesses... This is where the grace of God multiplies. You see, your sins add up. They do. They stack up. But grace multiplies. It grows exponentially. It grows and it grows and it grows, and you can never exhaust it, and it will never end. That it is immeasurable. And this is why Paul goes on the rhetorical flourish, and he says, you will, to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There is no measure of its height. There is no measure of its breadth. There is no measure of its depth. 
that it overwhelms and overcomes your sins. And he prays that you would be strengthened to know that, that you would appreciate it. This is the direction it takes us by taking us into the depth of our sinful failures. And that the love of God, it also takes us into the great events of Jesus' death, of Jesus' resurrection, of Jesus' ascension. Paul has affirmed this all over the book of Ephesians, of what God has done and the riches of his grace that he's lavished on us. Where we read of Jesus' passion, where we read of Jesus' determination, of his resolve to accomplish the salvation of the world, that heaven and earth once again be united. And friends, in those events, we meet the love of God and we see all his determination to bring it about in our lives. And finally, it takes us into the future. That this is where the love of God takes us. It takes us into the future where God will indeed unite all things in heaven and on earth. He affirms this in chapter 1 and verse 11. That through Jesus, God is making all things new. And that a new world awaits us. A world where sin is no more. Its pollution is scrubbed away. It's brought into judgment and it's not there. Where dead bodies are raised and there is no more sickness and God stoops to wipe the tears from our eyes. That that is the extent of God's love, what he has intended for us and what he plans. And friends, when you look at that broad expanse of the love of God, Paul says that you can truly know it that you can taste it, but your knowledge of it will never be comprehensive, that you will have substantial knowledge of it, but you will never have exhaustive knowledge of it. You will have real knowledge of it, but you will never have complete knowledge of it. And when we take in the broad scope of God's love, we understand why. That it reaches into eternity past in the eternal counsels of God, and it reaches into eternity future when God will dwell with us in a new world free from sin. This is all the love of God that Paul says we must be strengthened to comprehend. And he uses the phrase that we would be rooted and grounded in love in verse 17. That this is one of the goals of the Christian life, that we be planted and then that we be built upon, that we built, be built upon the foundation of love. That we know that God has embraced us in Jesus Christ and nothing can sever us from that. Several years ago, I was in a conversation with a ministry leader and he said to me, he said, Chuck, you know, my experience working in the church has been that Christians, they are driven either towards license or legalism. They're either permissive and don't seem to take their Christian duties that seriously, or they are somewhat rigorous and they think uh, they are in danger of losing God's love and so they keep the rules and they do certain things. He said, for my ministry, I rather deal with legalistic Christians rather than Christians who live with license. And so I just asked him, I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, because we can get things done. And friends, this is the limited paradigm that we're sometimes presented with. That this is what the grace of God does. It either produces legalistic people or people who just live with license and it's really far from the case. That what the apostle prays for is that we be strengthened 
in order that we be rooted and grounded in love, that this would be everything for us, that when we contemplate and understand the love of God and it reaching into eternity past, reaching into eternity future, of course we deny ourselves and we follow, and we do so out of no slavishness, that we don't give ourselves out of drudgery, that we freely give ourselves to this God because we know that he has absolutely given everything to us and we can never fully get our minds around it. That's what the love of God does. It frees us from the self. And this is what Paul means when he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that yourself would be forgotten, that the presence of Christ would dwell in you as you ruminate upon his love, as you know it truly but not exhaustively, as you know it really but not completely. This is what the love of God takes us into. And so the vitalized, mature Christian life must be strengthened by God. It requires that we own our weakness, that we see that we're not sufficient for the task. We need power from the living Jesus in the form of the Spirit. And it also requires that we be strengthened to know this great mystery, this mystery that exceeds all knowledge, that we can memorize in facts, but we'll never exhaust in experience. The love of God from eternity past to eternity future. And so as you journey, and as you struggle with hope, as you face the trials and the tribulations and the trouble of the Christian life, ask God to empower you, that he would strengthen you, strengthen you for moving ahead in the Christian life and strengthen you as you go into the depths of all of his great love, and you'll never know any measure of it. Let's pray. Father, as we're confronted with the greatness of your love, we know that our minds are small and that we often close it out and we certainly don't understand it. But we ask that you take us to new vistas this morning and understandings that you broaden our horizons and we see the enormous breadth and height and length and depth of your love for us in Jesus. Take us deeper day by day into that. Make us alive. Lead us to maturity. Would we be willing to own our weakness so that we can find a strength that's only found in you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.